I do think you're right. I think being a prophet is, is very lonely, but I think we kind of burn out a lot when our prophetic work is all just about outrage online about the current political climate. And my sense is that people are get, kind of getting burnt out um, or tend not to be kind of in local spaces with real people and real, and real acts of kindness and compassion. And so, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're just going online and you're triggered all over again and you're just kind of like 24-7 you're in a, in, a, in a stress response and that's just not sustainable. So I would say kind of shut, shut down the social media for a week and, you know, volunteer somewhere in your local community where you're actually engaging in life-giving relationships with people. And that, that is probably a more tangible, fulfilling way of, of mending the world than just being upset all the time about what's going on on Twitter. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. It is almost Easter. I feel like this is the week before Easter. And a lot has changed, hasn't it? Like we can't go out, we can't be in community and love on one another, or at least we shouldn't be. Yeah, it unsettles me. And I'm sure it also unsettles you. So I'm thankful that we can still do things like this and have community online. And one of them, just to plug one of those, I've got a Facebook group called Can I Say This at Church? Honest Discussions in which, I mean, it's really a good group, really good conversations, really good questions and answers and just people doing life a little bit together digitally if that's possible and um, I'm really thankful it I'm really thankful for that group in times like what we're in now if you're able if that's something that you feel willing to do if in the past something in one of these episodes has really spoke to you or you walked away or listened away thinking about something that you heard please go over to patreon.com slash can I say this at church or to the website and click the patreon button become a supporter of the show this show is 100% produced by them and i am so very thankful for them today i spoke with richard beck richard comes back as a second time guest on the show we spoke man a long time ago I actually recorded with him i think december of 2017 about a book that he'd written at the time called stranger god about welcoming other people about matthew 25 and he has a new book out about johnny cash and if i'm honest i never really listened to a lot of johnny cash though I started to as I read this book and prepared for this conversation. And what I found was I really like Johnny Cash, first off, but welcome to the welcome to the party, Seth. You're just really late. But what I found is the gospel is able to be delivered in so many different mediums and formats. And so what does that sound like as a prophetic voice from a country music singer? What does that sound like from a guy that sings about murder on track one, sings about his wife on track two, and then sings about shooting a guy on track three. And then maybe we do Amazing Grace after that. I love this convo. I hope you do. Here we go with Dr. Richard Beck. Dr. Beck, welcome back to the show. We were teasing a minute ago, and it's been almost three years since I last spoke to you. So thanks for saying yes back then. I've actually listened to those old ones. I began transcribing the podcast back in like December or so, and so far I'm up to almost 800,000 words because I'm ridiculously ill-prepared for that. But I realized in listening back to the old ones how much 
more comfortable I've gotten asking questions about God. So thanks for bearing with me back in the day in a conversation that I liked, but yeah. Hey, no worries. I'm glad to be back with you. Yeah. Yeah. I saw your face when I said transcribing. It is exactly that. I did like one episode at like episode 80 something. And then I realized, shoot, you can't just transcribe episode 80 something and never do it again. So whatever. I was ignorant of the, of the, of the commitment that that was going to take. So I wanted to say thank you for coming back on. And then I just ask just for the listener. So since 2017, like what's new for you? Like, what have you been up to? What I, I'm, what did we what did we talk about? <laughs> we talked about unclean. Uh, no, we talked about stranger God. We talked a lot about disgust, contempt, about the church being afraid to put anything broken that makes us feel slightly broken up on the stage. Uh, I feel like we hovered around politics, but I was afraid to talk about politics, which oddly enough, we're recording this on the eve of the, of the democratic super Tuesday. So we'll probably still skirt it. Cause why not? Um, I don't know how you can not today, but yeah, it's been a long time since I thought about that episode. So I don't know exactly all, but that's the high points. That's the high points. Um, well, not a lot. I mean, I wrote, um, the book I think we're talking about tonight mm-hmm. about Johnny Cash, and I'm finishing up another one right now. On what? Um, it is called um, right now that the title I was just informed by the publisher is called Hunting Magic Eels. Eels, like like the snake Eels. things. Eels, okay. Yeah. And but the subtitle is Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age, and that is more of a descriptive title. So. It's about enchantment and disenchantment, stuff I kind of talked about in my book, Reviving Old Scratch, about how uh, atheism, agnosticism, the nuns uh, are, are kind of a, just a general trend towards skepticism mm-hmm. and doubt, disenchantment, right? Uh, struggling to believe in the supernatural. And I found myself like being kind of an apologist for faith in my college classrooms. And so spent a lot of time trying to kind of make an argument for faith, for belief in um, with millennials and Gen Z. And, and so this book kind of is about that. It's about how to kind of recover hmm. a mystical, experiential aspect of faith in kind of a very skeptical age. And the Hunting Magic Eels is just, it seems, I think they just picked it because it's a whimsical title. But I start off <laughs> the book in Wales with some friends, my friend Hannah and my wife. We were visiting a Welsh island where uh, pilgrims would come to this island because the, the legend was there was this well, a mag, uh, like a holy well that had magical eels in it. And if you put a handkerchief or something in it, a token from a lover and the eels disturbed it, that would be a sign that your love would be faithful throughout life. Huh. And so, yeah, so it was just this huge pilgrimage site. So I just kind of start the book about being in this kind of very Celtic Christian place looking for this, you know, ancient holy well that had these magical eels in it. And, and then that just kind of begins as a counterpoint to how like the world has changed so much since that time. Um, but I do have a, a great chapter in the book about Celtic Christianity, and huh. kind of their mystical bent and their embrace of nature. And so that's a big theme in the book as well, kind of a experiencing God everywhere in the world, uh, even in the natural world. So it's, yeah, it's about the enchantments of faith and how we're we're struggling a little bit with that and how we might recover it. Is that a fun conversation? So you're a psychology professor for those not paying attention to the episode. I think it's seven um, or to the show notes. Cause I think people 
honestly, I don't think they read those. Um, so, um, so is that a, is that conversation getting more difficult? Like as kids come into class and you're like, oh, we're doing this again. Oh, you got a new argument. I see you're further nuanced. Or is it the same thing over and over? Like, like lecturing as, as a college professor? Yeah, yeah. But when you're talking about like the, disenfr- the disenfranchisement and the, um, the skepticism of the students as you're trying to make a case for belief, it sounds like. Not necessarily yeah. Christian belief, but just belief overall. Although I have a feeling you'll take that bent. Is that, are they getting worse? Are they the same? Like the, the arguments that they're bringing to class as the, as the generations come and yeah, go. I don't, know. I don't know if they're coming in with arguments, um, but, but if you just kind of look at the rates of belief and, and just the demographic decline in the church, mm-hmm. so it's just that it's not that they're coming in with art. They're not coming in because I'm, I'm at a Christian university. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the students are coming in like hardcore atheists and they're ready to argue. But it's just that their beliefs are getting more and more fragile. And a lot of them, you know, just statistically are going to kind of walk off from faith yeah. very quickly. They're already in the process of walking off from faith, leaving church. And um, so it's not necessarily I'm dealing with hostility or strong counter arguments as much as that faith is kind of increasingly just kind of like, whatever. I mean, maybe I believe in God. Maybe I don't. I don't know if it matters. Yeah, my parents paid for me to come here. So I'm here. Yeah, it's more that kind of thing. Faith is getting so uh light it's losing its kind of weight so people kind of walk off from it without any sort of uh like they just it's easy to let it go because it doesn't mean much anymore so it's not like it's not that i'm dealing with like and it's not like they're even mocking towards towards like hardcore disbelief they're they're walking towards um maybe a maybe a spiritual but not religious stance Mm. Uh, they might describe themselves as spiritual like traditionally religious yeah well that sounds fun when does that come out i'm excited to read that i'm going to pre-order it because that that is up my alley that sounds that sounds fun it, it well not the, the eels the so much but the rest sounds fun yeah. hey <laughs> hey they picked the title so we'll see how it goes <laughs> magic eels they ask me what i think about that title i go well people will pull it off the shelf and go what's you know i'm more concerned what's the cover look like like how do yeah. you what do you do with that fun. i don't know it's gonna be some sparkly eels or something i don't know <laughs> I don't try to worry myself with too much of that stuff, <laughs> but all I have to say is the rough draft is due uh, next month mm. and then it, it'll take a year it, or whatever, six, to, six months to a year. To, yeah. To, so this time next year, maybe. Yeah. yeah. This sounds good. So the reason I brought you on today um, and I want to say thank you either to you or, or to, um, or to the publisher for sending the book. I really appreciate that. It was, it was a joy to read. And for those that know me well, music is like my jam. It is when, like I'm the person that gets tagged in posts saying, hey, I need stuff for this or stuff for this. But I've really never listened to Johnny Cash, and I don't actually know why. And so as I read through your book a bit, which the title of it is Trange Jesus and Murder, um, the gospel according to Johnny Cash. I don't want to end on murder. Um, so... I had not really listened to a lot of him and I found myself recently just hitting play. Like literally I um, purchased Spotify for the sole reason so that I could do that. Cause I got really tired um, that I couldn't pick and choose what songs I want. Cause I don't like them all. But um, how did you kind of get into wanting to mix Jesus and Johnny Cash together in a book where you're like, this matters. People should pay attention to the man in black. Yeah, I wasn't a huge fan either. I mean, I knew a little bit about him. I saw the the movie, I Walk the Line. Great you know, movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. And so, I, you know, it's kind of like Americana. You know a little bit about Elvis. You know a little bit about Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But anyway, I teach a Bible study. I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. I teach a Bible study out of the prison on Monday nights. And a couple of years ago, just grabbed like in a discount bin, a CD, cashes uh, live at Folsom Prison mm-hmm. concert in 68. And I thought, you know, this would be great to listen to on the way out to the Bible study. I'd listen to this live prison concert. And so I should just start listening to the album. And if you listen to it, it's just really a very different kind of album because you just hear the yelling and mm-hmm. the stomping and the cheering of the audience. And you can just feel the gratitude that they felt for him and the connection between cash and that prison audience. And that obviously was reflecting a lot of what I was experiencing on Monday nights out of the prison, the gratitude, the connection I had with the prisoners. And uh, so that just got really interested in his music. Like what's, what's this guy doing in a prison? Um, what, what's this connection he has with the incarcerated? So then I bought, his follow-up album live at San Quentin mm-hmm. started that album. So I think those two prison albums kind of hooked me right around this time. Robert Hilburn kind of published what a lot of people think is now the definitive biography about cash. So I read the biography and then kind of listened my way through his entire career beginning to end. Um, and then that made me uh, kind of a fan. And then I just started noticing that whole time, just noticing a lot of gospel connections with his music, what he did with his music but also in his own struggles. He, as, if you've seen the movie or you know anything about his life, he mm-hmm. struggled a great deal with drug addiction. Yeah. So his journey toward grace and his dealing with his own inner demons, how that came out in his music um, was an, also a big part of it. So yeah, that just kind of culminated in an idea of kind of maybe telling the gospel story through his life and his music. So I want to hit on some of the high points in the book. Um, and I remember saying this in the first episode because I say it to many people. I don't want to give away the bulk of the book because that's just not fair and people should buy the book. I like the chapter titles because I realized that those were songs about halfway in. I, it took me about that long before I realized, I'm like, oh, you're an idiot. Such an idiot. Um, so then, uh, uh, Which then if you listen to the song, actually the chapter makes a whole lot, whole lot more sense. But again, I'll express my ignorance. The only song that I knew well of Johnny Cash was Hurt and Ring of Fire, and honestly hurt just because it was in the Wolverine trailer, and it became, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It was actually is a really good, I'm assuming you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Yeah, I've um, seen it. Yeah, I, I don't know which one of the Wolverines it was, but either way. Anyway, so you talk about the, you use the word solidarity, and the and I think you, you say in there, or, or paraphrase in there, that like the cross is is used as an act of solidarity, like the way that Johnny Cash is ministering to people is an act of solidarity. But when I hear solidarity, I think when most people hear solidarity, like the way that you're using it, I don't think is the way that most people say it. So what do you mean when you're saying like the cross or you're implying that the cross is like an act of solidarity or like a gospel of solidarity? Yeah. So I mean, by solidarity, I just mean kind of um, standing with, being with, um, coming alongside and so, you know, so one way to think about the cross, a lot of people, when they think about the cross, are going to think of the cross as Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. But another way to think about the cross is that the cross is kind of a compass. It's a way of locating God in the world. And so we ask the question, where is God in the world? And the answer is hanging on the cross. Then, the, then your eyes and your heart and mind are going to move to where bodies are hanging on crosses, you know, literally or metaphorically. So your, your heart and mind is going to go to the edges or the margins of society because that's where Jesus was crucified. He's crucified outside the camp. So 
the way I'm defining it is that solidarity is kind of God's divine, in the crucifixion of Jesus, God's kind of divine solidarity with victims, with the marginalized and with the oppressed. And if that's the case, then Cash's music is a great example of the gospel because his music frequently spoke up for, like in the, in the song, um, The Man in Black, um, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, mm-hmm. living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. So his voice, musically, artistically, and his music kind of goes to the edges of society and sings for them the way Jesus stands with um, the God forsaken uh, on the cross. Yeah. Um, I want to want to push further on the margins and on the society. So often, in, as, as I've listened to Cash's music, um, I often find that he teeters between rage. I think rage is the right word. Um, like almost like a prophetic rage, like the way that Isaiah would yell at people or the way that Ezekiel would yell at people or the way that people like, what are you doing? You're doing it wrong. Stop it. This is awful. I found myself reflecting if I'm going to, if I'm going to hear a prophetic voice. And so we use cash as a prophetic voice. Should we use you as a prophetic voice? Why not? How would you advise as people are, are dealing or, or viewing a lens? Um, cause I would recommend again, getting the book, reading through it. Um, but when you have a prophetic voice talking to the margins, um, especially today, shoot, even today during the, the primaries, um, people will say when you speak to the prophetic margins or whatever, that you are just a social justice warrior or you're, communist or socialist or whatever the word is. So how do you hear a prophetic voice and engage in a prophetic voice, like take it in, internalize it, and then take action without being vilified as something antithetical to whatever the status quo is? Well, I mean, that's a great question because I think Cash's own career, he experienced some of those tensions. Like one of the chapters in the book um, is, uh, so you're right. Every, every chapter in the book is built around a Cash song. Yes. So um, the chapter, The Ballad of Ira Hayes, is about an album he recorded called Bitter Tears. Mm. It's an album a lot of people don't know about, but it's basically an album of Native American protest songs. So he, so he sings this entire album from the perspective of Native Americans who've, who've been kind of exploited at the hands of the American empire. And it's a harsh album. It's, 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 it's hard to read American history from that perspective, but it's the truth, right? And, and so he felt really passionate about that but it didn't get any airplay, right? Because again, it's a hard message. It's, it's not going to sell any records. Mm-hmm. It's not very commercial to hear that. Hear that. Um, there's some hard songs in that album. And so he actually had to take out this whole page ad in Billboard magazine. And the opening line of the ad was, you know, I think it was like DJs, rec- radio managers, where are your guts? <laughs> and, and so he, he takes out this full page ad kind of calling out the courage with a lack of courage in the country music establishment and in the radio stations that would refuse to give airplay to this highly prophetic um, record. And he burned a lot of bridges and spent a lot of his social capital trying to get airplay for that album. And so I, so you're right. I think, I think sometimes the prophet is going to have struggled to be heard uh, in many ways. I think there's lots of things we could say about that, but I think one of the things that helps give you a voice is if you are at least self-reflective about yourself. And I think people uh, could hear Cash sing prophetic songs because he would also sing songs that spoke to their own brokenness. And so I think, I think solidarity has to be leavened with grace and mercy and a confessional posture towards your own, your own sinfulness. 
and I think maybe sometimes that's lost a little bit um, in in online and on Twitter, like so, social justice Twitter is mm-hmm. that lack that lack of looking in the mirror, um, the, the the lack of a humility. And Cash was a really humble guy too. People, you know, he was a very down to earth kind of guy. So he himself and his person was hard to you know hard to dislike. So I think we kind of season our prophetic voice with a degree of confessional humility and a lot and a lot of grace. I want to dig in, and I don't remember reading it in the book, but I want to pick at the other part of your brain. So, uh, healthily, healthily, is that a word? I think that's a word. How does one do that? Um, I feel like the role of a prophet is one that's lonely. It's one that's isolated and it's, and it's one of, of depression almost. And so as we're listening to those voices or as we feel called to use our voice in that way, what are some things that you feel like we could do to do it healthily to make sure that we don't spiral into something unhealthy, causing trauma uh, or, or causing damage to ourselves? Or should that even be the point? Like just as a person. Yeah, no, that's a really big conversation. I think one of the, one of the chapters I talk about in the book um, is on, I talk about the song give my love to rose where this guy goes to this guy dying by the dying by the railroad tracks and i and i kind of use that chapter to to talk about kind of the intimate face-to-face more local aspects of of engagement um and i do think you're right i think being a prophet is is very lonely but i think we kind of burn out a lot when our prophetic work is all just about outrage online about the current political climate. Mm-hmm. And my sense is that people are get, kind of getting burnt out um, or tend not to be kind of in local spaces with real people and real and real acts of kindness and compassion. And so, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're just going online and you're triggered all over again and you're just kind of like 24 seven of, you're in a, in, a, in a stress response and that's just not sustainable. So I would say kind of shut, shut down the social media for a week and, you know, volunteer somewhere in your local community where you're actually engaging in life-giving relationships with people. Yeah. And that, that is probably a more tangible, fulfilling way of, of mending the world than just being upset all the time about what's going on on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I would agree. Um, I have two Twitters. One that I have just follow people that inspire me. And then there's the other that honestly is a dumpster fire. But I go into it when I really want to be hateful on purpose, like intentionally, like just yell at the void, knowing full well that nobody's going to read it because there's hardly any followers there. I just want to yell at the void with oh, as yeah. minimal repercussions as possible um, just to do it. Um, can I read you a bit? Do what? It's cathartic. Oh, it feels great. It's uh, it's yeah. better than yelling down here in the basement and waking my kids up. Um, can I read you a bit of something that you talk here? So if that's fine. Um, sure. So there's a part in here in The Legend of John Henry's Hammer. That's the chapter that I'm in. So you talk about a call for economic solidarity. You talk a bit about, um, what's it say at the bottom here? That, that effectively... Talking about the American dream and embedded deeply in the American psyche is a belief that if you are honest and hardworking, you simply cannot be poor. And then you say Johnny Cash knew that this was a lie. And I'd like to talk a bit about that because as I read that, I thought about the prosperity gospel, but it seems like something more and something also that. So 
Can you talk a bit about economic solidarity and how that relates to the way that we do church and community today? Yeah, I mean, the, the point of, of that chapter is to kind of push back a little bit upon the kind of the, yeah, the, the meritocracy, the belief that in America, everybody has a level playing field. And if you're just a hardworking, virtuous person, um, you just cannot but be at least solidly middle class. But Cash grew up in like Depression era Arkansas. And so he saw hardworking people who were poor. And it wasn't due to lack of virtue and it wasn't due to lack of a, a work ethic. But sometimes the economic, you know, the economic situation is just stacked against you. So when I talk about Johnny Cash knew that was a lie, what I'm reflecting on is his intimacy with poor, poor, poor rural people and how um, they were poor through no fault of their own. And so I'm trying to expand out from that to just kind of say there is a tendency, I think, in Christianity and in certain political sectors to moralize poverty, that the only reason you're poor in this great nation is that there's something wrong with you. So we kind of point at the poor and blame them. Um, and so I think the first step of economic solidarity is, is stepping back and looking at systemic forces that kind of uh, are stacked against people and, and do what we can to um, change those, those, those systems or, you know, or at a bare minimum, stop pointing fingers and blaming them for the circumstances that they find themselves in. And also own, conversely, your own fortunate situation. A lot of us will, would take credit for our own um, uh, success in life without kind of taking into account that we inherited a great deal of wind at our back. Mm -hmm. So just being honest about that, I think, puts you in a better, more th sympathetic posture to stand in solidarity with somebody because through no fault of their own, they're struggling. Um, through, no, through no virtue of my own, my life has been relatively more easy. Yeah. Do you, as you were researching Cash, can what is kind of his um, inter intersection with the church over the course of his life and his career? Like, how did he plug in in his day and age into the church? Or did he at all? Like, or, like how did that play well? Or, or did it play well at all? Well, I think he grew up going to church, but then I think in the early years of his of his career, he kind of walked away from the church. And so he really only kind of re-engaged, I'd say, the church. He always was involved in Christianity because it was deeply embedded. He, he, he read the Bible every day. He sang gospel music. So he was always a very Christian person. But as far as like being invested in, in, a, in a local church community, that didn't really happen until kind of after he kind of dealt with his inner demons. So right around, you know, 68, 69, when he starts kind of getting sober again, does he kind of really formally engage back in um, in, in a local church community there in Nashville? Um, and he also uh, kicked up a friendship with Billy Graham and started doing Billy Graham crusades. So he becomes almost a very overt evangelist in that kind of middle part or back end of his career. Like he wrote a book about the apostle Paul he uh, did a full-length feature film called The Gospel Road hmm. about, the, about the life of Jesus. So he became a very overt kind of Christian role model. And a lot of people think that's, that's kind of actually when his music kind of took a hit during hmm. the 80s when he was most overtly evangelist. He lost a bit of his artistic edge at that point. And that's an interesting reflection point, too, about can you be a really good artist if you're just proselytizing? Do you think that he lost an edge? Like as you've dove oh, into yeah, him? Yeah. 
I think a lot of people, so after he peaks with at Folsom prison and at San Quentin, he gets a variety show in the early seventies called the Johnny Cash show. And that kind of spells the end of your kind of cultural relevance. If they give you a music variety show. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You're just the, you're just the opening act for everyone else. Right. And so at this point he's kind of hitting his, a generational peak where he's, Right, he's now at the starting to get to the nostalgic. Who's tuning into the Johnny Cash show? Well, people that listened to him uh, in the fifties when mm-hmm. when he came out with "I Walk the Line" and Folsom Prison Blues. Right, so the twenty-year-olds that were listening to him when he was releasing in 55, 56, his first music, they're you know they're now 35, 40 years old, tuning into primetime TV. So the young people aren't listening to him. So from the, you know, but he did, have, he, he was pretty successful in the seventies, but a lot of people consider the eighties his lost decade. He mm. just didn't produce anything of interest until Rick Rubin showed up his life in the early nineties. Yeah. It took a little bit of hip hop to bring him back to life. I didn't realize that Rick Rubin produced those, what's it like three or four albums back to back to back that. Yeah, four albums right at the end of Cash's life. A lot of people think some of the best music he ever did. Yeah. Uh, is it, I always say the name wrong. Delia, Dahlia, Delia, Delia. Yeah. Delia's gone. I didn't really, I think that's the one you read about in the book that like MTV wouldn't play. Is that, is it that one or was it a different one? No, it was Delia's gone. Like, yeah, he, uh, it's, it's about domestic homicide and, yeah. and Kate Moss, I believe plays the corpse. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, there's a scene in there where I think he th- puts her in the grave and throws dirt on her. And, and it was just too dark that, that this, you know, it's a song about a murder yeah. and he's burying her. And so MTV thought it was too dark. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're fine with gyrating everything else, but we can't talk about real life things because death apparently death doesn't actually happen. doesn't come for us all. How does one um, sing gospel music, make documentaries, connect with Billy Graham, become an evangelist, but then also show up and maybe on a Thursday talk about pumping slugs in, in, into people and and just other. He, he sings a lot of murder ballads, which I find um, with the with the tempo that he does them in, you don't kind of realize that they're a murder ballad until you're about halfway in. And you're like, oh, this went there. This got real, <laughs> real fast. Especially if you're like me, you're like, oh, I can handle this. I can do. What did he say? <laughs> what did he just say? Um, so how do yeah. those two, like, how can you juxtapose those two? Because I think if I said something, like if I went to work and I'm like, yeah, I'm a practicing Christian, but also let me tell you about my favorite song about killing people. That would be just great. Like, how do you, how do you combine those two? Well, yeah, well, that's kind of where the title comes from. So uh, my son Aiden is the one that came up with the title. So during this time when I was listening to a lot of Johnny Cash in the car, uh, he's obviously in the car and so listening with me. And so we were driving to school one day and Aiden looks at me and goes, dad, Johnny Cash seems to sing about only three things, trains, Jesus, and murder. <laughs> that would be a great title of a book, son. <laughs> the title of the book. But it's true. He sings about gospel songs and then he'll sing murder ballads. He did it in his concerts that way. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so the tension I play with in the book is the, the way that kind of saint sinner, the light and the darkness kind of mixes in all of us. I think there's that famous quote that, right, that the, the line that divides good from evil is a line that runs through every heart. And so, so yeah, murder might be a little bit strong, but I think all of us have great capacities for cruelty and hate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we also have great in the same person, great capacity for love and compassion. So we're, so in the great Lutheran formulation, we're all simultaneously saints and sinners. 
And I experienced that out of the prison every Monday night, right? Here are guys that are literally murderers, um, but yet they're also very beautiful human beings to me. I, grace comes to me in them all the time. Mm -hmm. That's weird, right? That's strange to get Jesus coming to you from a murderer. Um, but that's, that's the reality. And so I'll, the other thing I'd say here too is I think one of the reasons why Cash is such a compelling artist is because he he's able artistically to sing to the full bandwidth of the human moral experience. He's able to sing about Jesus and murder. And there's a kind of a truthfulness and authenticity to that, that people are attracted to, where I think a lot of Christianity and Christian entertainment just restricts itself to the good. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but that becomes kind of a diet of cotton candy. Yeah, positive and encouraging. Only yeah, ever. and it's not even artistic. It just becomes again, kind of like we're talking about, kind of propaganda mm -hmm. or kitsch, um, preaching to the choir and to the to the already converted. So, but cat with and country music, I think, is also really good at that because it'll sing about pretty dark people and places, um, but also sing about Jesus. And so, Cash, I think, is just an example of kind of a larger trend within country music to sing across the whole bandwidth of, of ask you about um well firstly i've wanted to talk to you about satan for the longest time i've just never been able to connect with you on it but that's not yeah. what we're going to talk about here but oh. there was a part we can if you want um talk about satan yeah long. uh yeah well <laughs> i um i if i remember right i thought about emailing you like last august and i was like hey let's talk about the devil for halloween this will be great and um and then i don't even know if i ever hit send that's on me you know maybe we'll figure that out after the end of the night yeah i wrote a whole book about satan right yeah which to be honest i haven't read but i wanted to read it and then prepare and then we have a no, good we, conversation we'll yeah sure um that's either way um but there's a part in here that blew my mind so in sunday morning coming down you draw a parallel, and I had never read this in Second Kings. And then just so for those people in the back row not listening, um, so they are a uh, Ahaziah. I don't know how to say his name. Ahaz a Ahaziah. Yeah, the king of Israel. So you talk about he suffers a fall, he gets hurt, and what he does is he goes and he consults Baalzebub, which means literally the Lord of Flies. And you draw a distinction there of demons and idolatry and the propensity, I guess, not necessarily just for cash to do that, probably for us all. Can you talk a bit about demons and idolatry and how those two are? Because when I think of idolatry, I think of like, you know, like I made my, my phone an idol. Like I, that's what my attention goes to, or yeah, yeah. I think that's what I'm thinking about. Well, I mean, I, and I think, I think that's a good, that's a good connection. Yeah. So in the book, I talk about, um, in the gospels, how Satan is described as Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. And the, the the Lord of the Prince of Demons, and scholars don't really know where that name comes from. But one idea is that Beelzebub comes from this Canaanite deity in Second Kings, Baal Zebub, and so Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord, and Zebub is the Canaanite word for flies, and so Lord of the Flies. So that might Baal Zebub eventually becomes um, Beelzebub in the New Testament, 
And the point I make in that story is King Ahaziah, right? He falls, he's hurt, but instead of turning toward Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he turns instead to this Lord of the Flies. And so there's an interesting connection here between the demonic, between Beelzebub, between the Lord of the Flies, and turning to a false god um, for relief. And so idolatry all through scripture is kind of tied up in the demonic, right? Where so the, the false gods of the nations which the idols represent, you know, if you watch the development in the New Testament, gradually, you know, Paul's quite explicit that the, the false gods of the nations are demons. He says literally the pagan sacrifice to demons. And so idolatry is intimately associated with, you know, the demonic. But all that to say is you're right then. So if you think about your iPhone or you think about, well, cash, in this case, I was talking about his drug addiction. So if you think about the things that we turn to, the things we lean on, the things we are addicted to, then properly you can call those forms of demon possession, right? They're forms of idolatrous worship towards the Lord of the flies. So wherever we're turning away from God and towards some sort of idol in a dependent kind of way, you can kind of always hear this buzzing sound, right? You can hear the flies swarming. I want to try to ask this question in a way that isn't. I don't know how to ask this question. And so if I say it wrong, tell me, and I'm going to try to re-ask it. I have recently been talking with so many people, and many of them has say that the way that many, especially in our country, but overall, like we have an addiction to religion and no relationship with God. Um, so in that framework, do you feel like religion could be a demonic form of idol? And I'm aware oh, of how yeah. bad that, I don't know if I'm saying that well. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I think, I think, um, so yeah. So one of my favorite voices here to kind of connect it back with the prophetic, um, is Walter Brueggemann. You know, Walter Brueggemann? I do. I've spoken with Walter. He's great. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I think the best book he ever wrote is a book called the prophetic imagination. Mm -hmm. And his argument is he, he goes back to Exodus of Moses and he says, you know, when we think of, uh, Moses going to Pharaoh and he says, set my people free. He says, the, actually, the first slave that has to be freed in Egypt is God, right? So e Egypt, royal Egypt has to envision that God could be over against them in a critical capacity. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. And so there's always this temptation for the religious community to... Uh, own God and make God God's voice equivalent with our voices. And whenever that happens, whenever um, God and I agree and, and everything I think God thinks and God kind of basically baptizes everything my faith community or my, my nation believes, the minute there's no daylight between us and God, then God at that point has been captive. God has been made a slave and now God has been made in our own image. So that's an idol. And so the first activity of the prophet is to create this kind of prophetic imaginative capacity that the God you believe in is actually um, over there to go back to the idea of solidarity. Mm -hmm. God is actually over there with those people. God is standing on the outside of your, your boundaries. God is at the fences of your nation, right? God is on the other side of the railroad tracks. God might even be with your enemy. Um, speaking a prophetic word against you, that, that, that ability to imagine that is to me, um, the best way we keep our religion free from idols. Yeah. 
instead of the cozy God always agreeing with me, it is the uncomfortable, restless sense that God might actually be speaking a word against me. Mm. And that's kind of one of the things I talk about in Cash's book. Uh, this book about Cash is the way I, I talk less about religion, but more about nationalism, the mm-hmm. patriot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cash sang a lot about, he sang a lot of nostalgic music about America. And so I didn't want the book just to be this kind of like everything he sang was unproblematic and easily an example of the gospel message because I struggled a bit in our current political context with the patriotic, nostalgic music that he sang. And so in those chapter, I wrestle with the way, you know, kind of God and nation nostalgia can, you know, God is for us and, and always against the people we're against. And so I talk about how Cash was able, though, as an artist, to sing songs that were critical of America. And so a good example of that is the one we just talked about, Bitter Tears. Mm-hmm. So here's a whole album yeah. where he's singing songs that are pretty critical of America. And, and But nowadays, it's like if you are critical of your country, then you're unpatriotic. Right. And, and so to me, the way... The way you keep your religion and your nationalism free from those temptations of idolatry is is continue to cultivate, like Cash, I think, demonstrated that prophetic capacity to allow God to say something negative about you. Because you, the minute that capacity is lost and you can't say anything critical of America or you can't say anything critical of your Christianity or of your church without that being considered a sign of disloyalty, that's an idol. Like at that moment, the, the, the prophetic capacity is lost, and we're now in an idolatrous situation. Yeah, um, I want to ask you two more questions, maybe. Well, I definitely have one more question because I've been asking everybody the same question. So, okay. I am ashamed to admit. So, it's the chapter called "The Man Comes Around." Um, mm-hmm. I learned more about the Book of Revelation in your breakdown and the song together because nobody really preaches on revelation. And when they do, I don't know what I'm listening to, at least not in the church that I attend. Like we just don't talk about revelation a lot. Um, we did spend a considerable amount of time in the prophets over the summer, um, but not much on revelation and at a very high level without burying the lead or anything like what would, I don't know how to ask this question. So I guess my question is this, if Cash came back and sang one more song in one more church, and we're just going to put every Christian in the same church, and he sang this song, like this is the one that he sings. The man comes around? Yeah. What do you feel like the congregation would hear? Like hear him singing? Like what would they be called to? Well, see, that's, an, that's a great question because a lot of people love that song, mm-hmm. right? Because it's an old school kind of judgment day kind of song. Mm-hmm ever heard it, it's basically the man comes around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Um, everybody won't be treated all the same. And so it's a very judgmental, non-politically correct kind of song. And so I try to wrestle with that song in the book because, you know, again, I'm reflecting on it theologically. Yeah. So I'm not just going to be like, man, I love that song. It's the same way. It's the same way. Have you ever seen the, the heard him sing the song, God's going to cut you down? Mm, I don't know if I've heard that you one. Watch the video. So it's okay. it's it's a cover he does. It's an old thing, but it's, it's called "God's Gonna Cut You Down." But it's got all these Hollywood people singing this song, right? All these liberal, hmm. these liberal Hollywood elites singing this song. God's gonna cut you down. I'm like, you don't believe that, you know? Like that kind of harsh, yeah, timey revivalistic religion. So it's kind of interesting to see 
kind of liberals singing, God's going to cut you down. But I guess everybody has their vision of who that person's going to be. So that's one way to think about it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So the one thing I tried to talk about in the book of Revelation is like Revelation is going to quickly go off the railroad tracks. And I think God, uh, uh, Johnny Cash is God's going to cut you down. is going to go off the railroad tracks. And we don't understand the central regulating metaphor of the book, which appears in Revelation four and five, when John turns and sees um, the lamb who has been slain ruling from the throne. And if you read all of that warfare and judgment imagery in Revelation through, if you read it literally, then yeah, it's pretty horrific. But if you constantly read it through the metaphor that the way God achieves God's victory, the way God fights God's battles the way God's power will manifest, the way God's judgment will, you know, is through the cross of Christ, through God's self-donating, self-giving love. If that's God's victory, if that's God's weapon, the blood of the lamb, then, um, then I think we have a way to interpret that language of judgment or minimally reframe what the scales will be. How will your life be weighed or measured? So I think to answer your question, honestly, a lot of people, when they hear God's going to cut you down, or they think when the man comes around, yeah, they're going to think of people who deserve God's punishment because they're pagans or they're, you know, like, yeah. like they're going to, they have, they have the group in mind that, that God's going to damn. Um, but if you read my chapter, um, it might be you that is being weighed in the balance and found wanting because of your lack of charity and love towards those people. Mm. So that, so so I say judgment day is coming, but a lot of us might debate about what the criteria is going to be. And I think Johnny Cash was very clear and he said it, you know, that love is the criteria by which we'll all be judged. And if that's going to be the way we're all going to be, if the man comes around and we're all going to be weighed by how much we've loved each other well, then I don't know. I think that's, that's not a bad judgment day, right? That's not a bad, and if that's not a bad way to live your life, to think that my ultimate when I stand at the judgment seat of God that I have to give accounting for how well I loved other people. Yeah. Um, that, that might be terrifying. We might not like the idea that you have to give an accounting, but if you're going to have to give an accounting, that's not a bad accounting to give. It also kind of mirrors what Christ said, you know, just love your neighbor, love your God. Like these, this is the criteria for people that want to follow me. Yep. Just if you could do this, that would be great. Um, yeah. So I do want to end on that final question. So, when you say the word God, and so in this case, the God that was doing the judging there, what are you intending to say? Like when, if, if, if you were, if I was a student in your class and you're like, here, let me tell you about God. What are you actually trying to communicate when you say those words or that metaphor? Well, I mean, as a Christian, God, you're only going to be able to know God in much as that God reveals God's self to you. So, so God's going to ultimately be a mystery until, unless God bridges the gap. And so I would say the God I confess and believe in is most clearly exemplified upon um, in, in, in Christ. So my, my definition of God is very Christological. So he is the image, you know, he is the image of the invisible God. Um, uh, he is, he displays the divine nature. And so I think first John summarizes it really well, right? God is love. And so that's the way I, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm a Christian. Like I, like I signed up for the team that like said those three words, God is love. Like that's, that's, I'll go with that. But the hard part about that is, is that, is that love is, 
is also cruciform. And so to me, God is not just love, but cruciform love, because a lot of us think we're, a lot of us are lovers in our own minds. But when love is costly, hard, um, when it involves loving one's enemies, there's not a whole lot of people that sign up for that, right. for that journey. And so I don't want to say God is love in a trite way. Um, Cause I think it's the hardest thing you can attempt in your life. Like if you really try to love everyone or the way Jesus says it in Luke, be kind, you know, be, be, he says kind of your father in heaven is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. He sends his son and his reign upon the mm-hmm. good and the bad. Yeah, yeah, the just and the unjust. Yeah. Yeah, he is kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. Mm-hmm. So be children of your father in heaven. Well, that, man, to be kind to the wicked and the ungrateful, you know, I, I don't care how liberal or tolerant or social justice warrior you are. All of us struggle with being kind to the wicked and the ungrateful. Absolutely. But that's what makes us children of God. So for me, God is love as defined in Jesus, but it's that hard cross-shaped love. It's, so it's not this kind of like, oh, I just, it's not this spacey, like I love everybody. It's, it's like daily work of loving the hard to love people in your life. Yeah. Thank you for that. So you, so the book again, I'm going to have it linked in the show notes. People should buy it. Also green's my favorite color. And so the whole book cover is green. I, I find it, I find it striking. Um, very few books are printed in green. I don't know why it's always red, blue. Um, yeah. like it's just, as I'm looking here, it's all resin blue. So I appreciate the green. Um, but you blog at experimental theology dot something i have it i don't i can't remember exactly what yeah it is. i think We're, google experimental theology will come up but i'm still on like blogspot so it's all it's the whole experimental theology dot blogspot.com yeah. so i've never changed from that original keep it one day in 2007 i kind of said here's a free way to start a blog and i never changed yeah can i i want to i want to poke at you a bit on something you wrote at your blog spot because i go there about uh, once every three or four months and just kind of see what you're what you're yeah. writing because you you're all over the place but you have an article in here and i've got it pulled up here saying an article a blog saying it's it's the gospel according to the lord of the rings week seven which i want to be clear Dr. Beck, I haven't read week one through six. Um, you say the uselessness of Tom Bombadil, and that's a Lord of the Rings character. But yeah. he's my favorite character. Like, how can, how can he be useless? I actually was really mad when he wasn't in the movie. I'm like, come on, man. This yeah. guy's literally better than an int. Anyway, I just really nerded out there. But what do you can I just what do you mean when you say the uselessness of Tom Bombadil? Which has nothing to do with this book, but I've got you, and I'm curious. <laughs> First of all, it's it's good to write provocative things, mm-hmm. right? It's good to kind of, you know, to have a title up there like the useless of Palm Bomb doing like, mm-hmm. you know, get people like, what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, so there's a little playful provocation in the title and to, but so the point being made, I'm, I'm kind of using Fleming Rutledge. Fleming Rutledge is a pastor and a writer that she kind of has written a book about this and she has, that's a phrase of hers. Mm. And, and her and her point is, is that although although Bombadil is a beloved character, at the end of the day, um, his kind of self-contained world um, isn't going to be enough to withstand the shadow. That that uh, the she contrasts kind of Bombadil with Rivendell, and so Rivendell is as idyllic as Bombadil's, right? The House of Elrond is, but 
Rivendell knows there's a threat. Rivendell knows there needs to be a plan of action. So Rivendell represents resistance and Bombadil kind of represents that kind of idyllic turn inward. Mm. Um, This is not to say that he's useless. Like somebody got on the blog and said, hey, Frodo would be dead if Tom didn't say <laughs> right, right. Right. So, so I get all that. You know, they would have been, they would have died in the, you know, the old what's that old tree? Uh, the Ents. Uh, I can't remember his name though. No, oh. but they're in the old forest, and like that when he oh. when he covers them. Yeah, mm. there's like an old tree that is going to eat them or something. I can't, rem- I can't remember it. But but you know, so it's not saying he doesn't have any purpose. Mm. But the overall thing, and so I'm just kind of making a metaphor for the church. Yeah, yeah, that posture. Is, yeah, the posture kind of like yeah, it should turn inward yeah. and kind of create a cultivated space where we can, you know, that 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 is good and that's there's a role for that. But at the end of the day, right, we got to get boots on the ground and kind of you know. And so, so the the title is just about kind of the two postures we can adopt in a world that's spinning out of control. We can just kind of turn into our yeah. turn into our little clique or clan, or we can kind of go. No, we got to. We got to take action. Yeah, um, and so it's a contrast between Bombadil and Rivendell. It's a metaphor. The, the title works well because as I was scrolling through, I'm like, eh, eh. I'm like, wait, what did he say? Yeah, there you Scr- go. And, you know, lack of meta read for. Screw that. I'm going to read this. This is bull. <laughs> this is bull. Um, but anyway, so you got the blog spot. Where else would you direct people to that want to kind of dive into what you do? That's it. That's, That's my it. only online presence. Yeah, That's easy. That's easy. Yeah. Though. So. Um, yeah, thank you so much again for coming back, Dr. Beck. I'll give you back your evening and, and we'll both watch the roll call of whatever's happening with this. Yeah, yeah, I gotta go find out what's going on out yeah, there. Yeah, it should be fun. I, I tell you, it's been bliss to not even care about it today because I've just been yeah. doing other things. So thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. That was a pleasure. Yeah, good talk to you, Seth. As we wind the show to a close, I referenced it at the beginning, but I really do hope that you're taking care of yourself in these pandemic times. I'm so thankful every single one of you. And if you need anything, I don't know what help I can be, but please reach out to me. If you need just an ear as you're frustrated or anything, reach out to me and I'm happy to give you my ear. Thank you to the Salt of the Sound for their music again in this episode. As I continue to work back through the transcripts in the backlog of conversations that there are. If you haven't dived into those, do that. Go to the website, find the transcripts. I love doing them. Um, actually, I take that back. I don't really love doing them, but I love what I learn when I do them as I re-listen to conversations and I'm listening word for word as best I can. I'm finding so many things that I missed the first time, so I would encourage you to do the same. Maybe become a patron supporter of the show. But then if you know people that would benefit from reading a conversation that maybe can't engage in podcasts in the way that you can, share those transcripts with them. Let them know they're there. That'd be a big help. Be safe. Know that you're blessed. And we will talk soon.